Good morning. As we said last week, Paul was careful, very careful when he asked people to give to God's work. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he deals with the subject of giving. And as we saw last week, there are two principles for giving in the New Testament. Giving is to be free will and face-driven. Beginning 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul writes, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. When Paul wrote this, he had introduced the offering he was taking to Jerusalem from the Gentile churches in the Roman Empire and Jewish Christian churches. He was arranging to take this offering and bring it to Jerusalem. He had told them about that, and he assumes that when he comes to Corinth to collect this offering, some of the Macedonians will travel with him. Now, they were an impoverished church, and yet they gave generously and out of their poverty. And what Paul is describing, if Macedonians come with him, when he goes to Corinth to get the offering and and they don't have it ready, and the Macedonians had given out of their the depth of their poverty, it would humiliate Paul and it would humiliate the Corinthians as well. Um, if they had nothing to add to the funds for the saints, yeah, it would not be a good thing. So Paul doesn't want to get there and have a hasty collection to put together at the last minute. That's why he sends some brothers ahead to tell them about Paul's imminent visit and try to get them to a place where they can raise money for this cause that they really believed in. Uh, the collection project was supposed to attest to the partnership of the Gentile churches with the Judean churches. If Paul has to beg or coerce them to contribute, that would defeat the purpose that Paul wants to use the offering for. It's not just treating their physical needs. It's not just to buy them clothes and offer them money so that they can meet their basic needs. It certainly is about that. But Paul has another agenda in mind. He wants to bring a free will, heartfelt offering from the churches in the Roman Empire and say, this is how much these brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentile in Christ, this is how much they care about you. Look at what they gave 
to me to give to you. And, and those gifts would be received and they would see them. And Paul would be able to say, tell them about the spirit. And they really, boy, they, they really wanted and, and it would soften their heart. Paul desperately wanted this to happen. Paul then tells them to get the offering ready. I want you to notice a couple things. How he gets them to give, but first, I want, I want us to look at what he doesn't do. Um, surprisingly, Paul doesn't command them to tithe. And they would have been very familiar with tithing. Most, many of the Christians in these churches in the Roman Empire were Jews, and they would understand tithing. We talked about tithing before. In Judaism, the tithe was commanded. It was more like a tax. It was not uh, voluntary. You had to pay it. In a theocracy, which Israel was, the money went to support the religious officials. In Jerusalem, in Israel, there was no separation between church and state. It was more like an Islamic state. The religious leaders were also the political leaders. And so in a theocracy then, the money went to support the religious officials, the poor, and to fund annual trips to participate in natural, national religious festivals. Um, and it was mandated. In the, New Testament, in the New Testament, the tithe was, I think we'll find it was removed. It was a feature of the Old Covenant. It was part of Mosaic Law. But when Jesus came, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what Jesus' death and resurrection means is that the Old Covenant, as an operating system that God abides by, that's passed away. That's been supplanted, replaced by the New Covenant. And the New Covenant doesn't have commands regarding tithing. Um, I found a short article about tithing from a Jewish perspective. I'm going to like, I'd like to read this to you. Here's what it says. Tithing from a Jewish perspective, which is, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Do Jews tithe? Certainly they must, right? Listen to the article. Thankfully, Jewish theologians know better than their Christian counterparts. They are well aware that only Levites have the right to receive the tithe of the people. The Levites were the tribe God chose to serve at the temple. They were the religious officials, and they got their livelihood from the tithes that were collected from the people. The people gave the tithes, and the tithes were how the Levites were able to support themselves. It was given to the Levites, and this right, it goes on. Um, they are well aware that only Levites have the right to receive the tithe of the people. After all, the Jewish leaders have the Old Testament as their scripture, and that's what it commands. And since there is no temple in existence, and consequently no ordained Levites or priests serving in a temple, then a major factor in fulfilling the laws of tithing does not exist in our modern world. 
in regard to this, it may be profitable to relate an event that happened to me over 35 years ago when I was just starting to study theology in college. This writer goes, he says, a letter had been given to me for answering. It was from a woman who heard that modern Jews were not tithing. She wanted to know whether the information was true, and if so, why the Jews seemingly violated the plain laws of the Bible, which spoke of tithing as a law to be obeyed. Having read the letter, I began to share her concern. To resolve the matter, I telephoned three rabbis in the Los Angeles area for their explanation. Much to my dismay, all three, independently of each other, informed me that no religious Jew should tithe today. I was startled at their replies. This appeared to be evidence that the Jews were so lax with their biblical interpretation that they were abandoning even the simple words of their own scripture about the laws of tithing. By the time I spoke with the last rabbi, my youthful indignation was beginning to emerge, but that rabbi then wisely began to show me my ignorance, not his, in the whole matter. First, he admitted that none of his congregation paid one penny of tithe that was demanded in the Old Testament. Not one paid one penny of tithe. He then said, if any member of my synagogue paid tithe in the scriptural manner, he would be disobeying the law of God. I was staggered by his answer. Writer says, he went on to inform me that since the Bible demands that the tithe be paid to Levites, he said it would be wrong to pay it to anyone else. And further, because there is presently no official Levitical order of priests ministering at a temple in Jerusalem, this makes it illegal at this period to pay any biblical tithe. He went on to say, however, that the moment a temple is rebuilt with its altar in operation and with the priesthood officiating at that altar and the Levites there to assist them, then every Jew who lives in the tithing zones mentioned in the Bible will be required to tithe according to the biblical commands. This teaching was a revelation to me. But the rabbi gave the proper biblical answers. If we are to obey the law, we cannot pay tithe unless we pay it to the ones ordained by God to accept that tithe. The rabbi then gave me some information on the method that many Jews use today to secure adequate funds with which to operate their religious organizations. What do they do then to raise money? He said, he went on to say that the activities of his synagogue were financially supported through the adoption of the patron system by its members. That is, families would buy seats in the synagogue for various prices each year. The rabbi mentioned that many of his congregation actually paid more than a tenth of their income to get better seats in the synagogue. This method for raising funds is perfectly proper from the biblical point of view, if Jews were to use it. This is because the money is paid to the synagogue and not to an ordained Levitical priesthood. The final rabbi was correctly interpreting the teaching of the Holy Scripture. While many Christian ministers today teach that Christians may be in danger of missing salvation itself if they do not pay tithe to the church, Jewish rabbis know better than to say such a thing. 
they realize that it is biblically improper. Actually, it is a blatant disobedience to the laws of the Bible for anyone to pay or to receive the biblical tithe today. Notice, then, how Paul doesn't command them to give. He doesn't obligate them with a tithe that no longer exists. Notice how he does encourage them to give, though. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul draws an analogy from farming. Those who sow sparingly, who throw a few seeds out there, what kind of harvest are they going to get? You're going to throw a few seeds and get a big harvest? No. You throw a few seeds, you get a sparse harvest. You throw a bunch of seeds, you get a big harvest. And uh, Paul applies this to giving. And it means that um, plentiful giving will result in a plentiful harvest. What kind of harvest? Some suggest that it teaches that the more they give to God, the more God will give in return. So if you, and a lot of times it's tithe, but let's set that aside, that if you give $1,000 to God, he'll give you 2000 back. Um, Paul doesn't pass this principle off of generosity as a shrewd investment strategy. Uh, on how to reap greater material blessings by giving a portion of it to others. Verse 8, look what it says. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Uh, God abundantly supplies us with everything necessary to have enough for our needs and, what Paul says, to be generous with others. Most people, when we think of being miserly or not giving, hoarding. It's, we do that because we worry that we won't be able to provide for ourselves. And that's a, certainly today with what we're dealing with in our nation, a valid concern from a church perspective, from individual perspective. We're wondering, how is this going to work? Listen to what Hebrews 13.5 says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God and money make the same claims. We need money. But what money says to us, I will never leave you and forsake you. What we're seeing is how untrue that is. 
a virus that's spreading across the land is shutting money down. Money says, I will always be there and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. God makes the same claim. God says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. But when God says this, it's true. And the reason it says this, it's not telling us to give away with saying, don't love money. Don't put all your confidence in it naturally. I'm not saying don't be concerned. We're all concerned about where the money will come from and what will happen. God says, well, what does he say? Don't worry about what you are going to wear or drink or put on. God knows that you need all these things. God knows you need all these things. It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. What does it mean to seek his kingdom and his righteousness? Our, root, our faith is to be rooted in promises. And these promises, I can't... You know what these mean? I'll never leave you. The word is to leave... It has the idea of untie. And I want you to think of a boat that's, uh, that's tied to a dock. And it's lashed to the dock and it's untied. And then what happens if the boat is untied? If the waters come by, it's going to sweep it downstream to catastrophe. God says, I will never do that to you. I will never leave you. I will never cast you adrift. And he says, not just, I will never leave you. I'll never cast you adrift. I will never forsake you. And what that means, I will never leave you behind. I'll never leave you behind. If you come to a place where you are without support, God says, I will never be the one to not support you. I will never leave you home alone. I will not leave you in the hospital alone. I will not leave you it's, and it's, we talked about it, it's what the Marines say when they say Semper Fi, always faithful. A Marine will never leave another Marine in the field of battle. And that's what God says to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Money says that, but it can't follow through. And God can. Paul finishes talks about in verse 12, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them, for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And what Paul's thinking again, I think he's dreaming of this. He's, he's just thinking of getting into Jerusalem, these people who are so impoverished and so beat up. And he has this offering from people who have always been their enemies. And Paul brings this offering from these people that they imagined were enemies, and he brings it, and he gives them the money, and what's going to happen? They're going to see this, and he's going to tell them. They really, they were trying, they've been saving up for years to give this. And I've been going from place to place, and, and here's what they said when they gave it to me. And let me tell you about the Macedonians. They were as poor as you were. But when I told them about what you were going through, they, they took money they didn't have. And here it is. 
It, it was given freely. It wasn't a tithe. It was face-driven because they were concerned about you. Look at this is what they're giving you. And Paul, what Paul saw, and he thought about their faces and how they were going to respond to this expression of love that they never imagined and it was going to soften them. And he just, he dreamed about it. He had to walk away from his people and being able to bring something like this together. We talked about giving and it applies to money and it applies to all kinds of things. It doesn't apply just to money, for, but to other forms of service. Uh, I'll close with this. I saw a, a broadcast about, um, I guess a dad with his kids did this um, broadcast where it's talking about having kids express their gratitude to those employees who are serving them. And this put together this little homely little homemade video, but went viral. And, all, and it showed about, it talked about all these kids and what they're doing. It showed this one, and it's just, it, and why, I, why I bring this up, it's the experience something freely given, how impactful it is. So showed this girl, she had taken a note of expression of thank you for doing this, and she put it on the end of a pole so that she could observe the social distancing requirement, and she put it up into the, into the window of a sanitation worker who went going from house to house collecting people's trash. And it, and it, and it, it had him afterwards, and this little, you know what happened? He, he couldn't drive his truck for a little while because he couldn't see clearly. This expression of gratitude, and there's a number of ways we can serve people through our monies and through our gifts and through expressions of thanks to the mail carriers, to medical personnel, those who are putting their lives in harm's way, putting themselves in harm's way, giving in a church context. It's going to be a difficult time for churches. Anything we do with respect to giving, be it money or gifts or service, do so with out of free will, face-driven. Think about the individuals that you are seeking to bless in his name. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you give us bigger hearts. We can't force that. You're not impatient with us. You know it takes time. I pray that we would make room in our minds for your promises, like the promises we talked about. You will never leave us and you will never forsake us. You will never cast us adrift and never leave us behind. And as we look at our checkbook, it's not that we pretend that financial problems aren't there, but we hold the problems and we hold your promises at the same time. And not to eliminate the tension, fear of what's happening is normal. It's not wrong and it's not unchristian. It's normal. You would have us hold our feelings, but hold your promises at the same time. God, I'm frightened about the future. We could pray. But thanks that you also say that you'll never leave me and never forsake me. That will help us not to 
eliminate the tension, but to endure it. So, Father, I guess I'm saying, would you continue to allow us to help us to understand the promises that you give so that we could cling to them as we, as we kind of navigate very, very choppy waters. In Jesus' name, amen.